Okay, let's start with a title for what I'm going to talk about tonight. Let's see if I can stick to the title at some point, which is uh, How We Incline Our Mind Becomes the Shape of Our Lives. And that which we incline our mind to becomes the shape of our lives. I'm going to leave that hanging in the air for a bit because I just want to read you a couple of quotes. Again, one Buddhist and one non-Buddhist. The Buddhist one's very short. Uh, the non-Buddhist is rather longer. And uh, see if you recognize any elements of this, um, perhaps transposed into your own lives. It's a little piece called, I Woke Late That Day. I woke late that day, the last of the week. Still I wanted to sleep. Stumbling downstairs, tripped over the cat, whining to be fed. Cursed, picked myself up. Hurriedly ironing a blouse, burned my hand into icy cold water. Kettle boiled and remained forgotten. Sandwiches. Did I want cheese or ham? I couldn't decide. Later, honey oozed over all the clean committee papers. Frost heavily laced the car. I scraped and sprayed and scraped and sprayed and scraped again. My sticker, Clean Up Britain, just became visible. I blew hot air and cloudy exhaust. Come on, come on, I rapped on the wheel. A dust cart jammed the width of the road, the dustman moving at a calm, leisurely pace. My first appointment in five minutes, with a 29-minute journey stretching ahead. (laughs) My shoulders hunched against the cold and the time. Why pick on me? I wished I hadn't agreed to be there so early. Shooting past the obstructions, I manoeuvred towards the motorway. My head throbbed as I zealously leant on the accelerator. I lane-hopped round the busy road, more to venge myself than to speed my progress. At one point, a large lorry cut right in front of me. As my hand reached for the horn, the sun began to travel on golden beams down to the earth, and the whole scene began to glisten, glisten like a crystal glass. My stomach relaxed first, so many knots. I drew new warmth and let go for a while. I smiled, and I knew I could do it again. (laughs) Does anybody recognize any elements of that? (laughs) You've got to transpose it into your own life. But, uh, okay, here's the the Buddhist one, very short, much shorter than that. And this is from a collection, actually, of poems, which is actually by the awakened monks. And it's part of the Pali Canon. It's, uh, it's uh, quite an important part, along, I might add, with the poems of the awakened women, the nuns, which is also part of the canon as well. But this is from the Terragata, which is uh, uh, this um, uh, collection of poems by the, by the monks. He who has perfected, well-developed, and practiced in due order mindfulness of breathing, as taught by the Buddha, illuminates the whole world like the moon emerging from behind a cloud. Okay, two transpositions there, two very, or juxtapositions, very different ways of approaching things. Mindfulness of breathing, an inclination of the mind, a way that we incline the mind, not the breathing part particularly, but the the mindfulness is a way that we incline the mind towards what is in a non-judgmental fashion.
take the first part. I mean, you get, I think, towards the element, end of the um, first piece I read, an element of mindfulness creeping in. Do you notice right at the end? Seeing the day, seeing the sun coming down, seeing it lighting up the world, seeing it, you know, creating this crystal glass, as she puts it, you know, and you smile. If you ever look at the statues of the Buddha, the Buddha has a faint smile on his lips. He doesn't sit there like that, which is, a, which is strange when you think actually the start from the, um, from the truth of Dukkha. <laughs> yeah. If that's the starting point, you think it would lead to more misery. No, it doesn't. The whole point about this path is that it's a path of transformation. It's a path of mental transformation. So this putative title I've kind of given the talk this evening, which is you know, how you incline the mind becomes the shape of your life. Well, it becomes vitally important which, what you lend your mind to. I mean, literally, the way that you incline it. So a mind inclined, for example, and it's a wonderful word, inclination, inclined. Inclined to anger, to resentment, to envy, to jealousy. What kind of world do you think we have? A world which is actually fused or suffused with those qualities. You will see very little but those qualities. A mind inclined towards the wholesome, towards compassion, towards friendliness, towards joy, towards kindness... A mind which is so inclined, and particularly a mind which is inclined towards mindfulness, then, well, we have two different worlds, don't we? The mind which is inclined towards all those lists, that list of unwholesome qualities I gave you, and the mind which is inclined to that list of wholesome qualities, and that's not exhaustive by any means. Interestingly, in the descriptions in Buddhist psychology... Wholesome states of mind far outnumber unwholesome states of mind. You'd be interested to know. Um, Although it doesn't feel like it (laughs) a lot of the time. Um, Particularly when our minds naturally gravitate much more towards the unwholesome. So how we are using the mind, how we're actually seeing the world, because this is what it amounts to, because every inclination of the mind is a seeing of the world in a particular way. We literally see the world through greed, aversion and delusion. And all of the psychology that arises from greed, aversion and delusion. Or we can see the world from the absolute opposites of those three things. Instead of greed, what we get is generosity. Instead of aversion, what we get is friendliness, actually, kindness. And instead of delusion, we get understanding, or actually in the old translations, wisdom. Same world, two different perspectives. We live two completely different worlds, or we can live two completely different worlds depending on the way the mind is inclined. You've only got to open the curtains in the morning when you're at home, I don't suggest here, but in the morning, to see that you're always in a mood. You notice this? Mm, Grey day. 
the reactive nature of the mind. And that, I mean, I joke about it, but actually that kind of initial opening kind of sets the seal for the shape of your life for that day, in many ways. Not always. Bear in mind, a lot of things I have to say have to be painted with fairly broad brushstrokes. However, I think we can see that there's a kind of moodedness. We're always in a mood. We're never not in a mood. There is no such thing as being without a mood here. So, if that is the case, which mood do you fancy more? (laughs) Which one do you want to incline your mind towards? Is it the mood which sees the world as being grey, horrible? The mind which is inclined towards this automatic way of reacting towards what we perceive as unpleasant phenomena, i.e. greyness, cloudiness, rain, there's a wonderful little haiku, actually, which is a complete antidote to this, by Basho. I don't, some of you probably know the poetry of Basho. But the haiku goes something like this. Fog, drizzle, drizzle, fog, snow. Wonderful day. <laughs> I think it shows you a whole different perspective on the way that we can see the world. So, this path that we enter into, this path of awakening, is a path of mental transformation. It's a path of transforming the mind from unwholesome, circular, repetitive behavior to a mind which has some spaciousness to it some freedom to it, that isn't always inclined to do the same thing, to think think the same thing, to be engaged in the same proclivities and thought patterns which run round the head. If anything, the Buddha is the first psychologist. This is one of the things I can say with with a degree of certainty, I think, that the Buddha is, Buddha is the first psychologist, he actually begins to look at the way what we perceive is constructed by the mind. There is a very, very famous passage, and probably many of you will notice, it's the opening passage to the Dhammapada, which is actually the most translated Pali text. Um, heaven knows why, it's an incredibly difficult text in Pali to actually um, translate but it's, it's about 56 translations of it, just to give you an idea. Some of them are very dubious quality. But the good ones start with something like this as the opening paragraph of it. Yeah. Mind precedes all things. Starts with that phrase. Mind precedes all things. So dependent on the nature of the mind depends on happiness or sadness, on misery or freedom. Dependent on the quality of the mind that we bring and its apprehension of any given thing in our lives. So, the Buddha is really not saying there's nothing out there. He's saying that there is something out there, but it depends on the way that we mentally construct it how we mentally approach it, how we apprehend it, how we can seize it, for example, with greed, 
or we can let it go with generosity. These are qualities of mind. They're nothing else. Actually, they're very strong emotional qualities, many of them. The urge to generosity, the urge to kindness, the urge to compassion, as equally the urge to anger and envy and malice and resentment and all of these unwholesome qualities of mind are equally emotions. So the one thing to get clear about this is the Buddha is not anti-emotions. If he's anti-any emotions, it's unwholesome emotions because they're destructive. They're destructive not only to others because we don't like to keep an emotion to ourselves. <laughs> you know, Why keep it to yourself when you can spread it around? Um, and even if we do keep it to ourselves, it, we often spread it around in that intangible form. You know, we know somebody who's in a bad mood the moment they step into a room. You know, we know somebody who's in a good mood the moment they step into a room. Somebody who can enliven everything just by their very presence and somebody can bring everything crashing down by their mere presence. So let us not think by keeping something to yourself you don't spread it around. You do. You, know, you still spread the emotion into, into your world. It seeps out. You're porous. Emotions you know, literally come through the skin into your world. So the Buddha isn't anti-emotion. What he is anti is unwholesome emotions. Unwholesome emotions such, for example, as anger, which many of us, even in a day, will incline our minds towards at some point. Certainly irritation, if not downright anger. Irritation at something that isn't quite going our way. Um, we incline our mind towards that. And in inclining our mind towards that, of course, we let others know very strongly. So it has a detrimental effect on ourselves and it has a detrimental effect on others. It literally becomes a form of cognitive dissonance in the sense that, and I think we have lots of expressions in the English language, certainly, to express some of these things. Anger makes us see red. Notice that? The blindness of anger. There are so many different um, indications, I think, just in examining your language, if English isn't your natural language, would give us an idea that, of course, that there is this dissonant effect that comes in often with unwholesome emotions, which literally do not let us apprehend the object at all. They cut us off from the object. When we look, and I'll go through this one evening, when we look at the list of the unwholesome emotions, the unwholesome mental qualities that the Buddha lists, they all literally cut us off from others. They stop us really interacting, having any real relationship with others. And surprise, surprise, one of the other things that, of course, these, this cutting off from others gives us and reinforces is self. Yeah. So self very much comes to the forefront in cutting us off from others. Sometimes self is in relation to others. And I use the word here in relation to others in scare quotes because it's not real relationship. Um, it's a relationship of self which is seen through these unwholesome emotions. 
the tendency to want to manipulate others, to want them to be for you in a particular way. This is you know, how, we, how it helps to construct our identity and make, make us feel that we're something in this world, you know, something substantial. I think one of the most terrifying prospects for most of us is that actually, if we actually own up to it, it can be almost anything. You know, there's a great deal of freedom there, not absolutely anything, but we can swing from wholesome to unwholesome. Now, the Buddha's path, obviously, is inclining the mind continuously towards the wholesome. Inclining the mind towards the wholesome means also engaging in wholesome behavior, too. Sometimes we think, and I think this is part of the problem often in the West, we think that often everything has to start with the mental before, before actually coming to fruition in behavior and the physical. The Buddha's not so sure about that. Because sometimes, he says, the only thing you can do is actually restrain yourself from doing certain things. The inclination of the mind might still be to want to do them. But actually the only way to break yourself of the habit of doing something is often behaviorally, to start to do something. Equally, wholesome emotions are not naturally arising sometimes. Often we have to engage in the behavior which are associated with wholesome emotions in order to develop them. A very good example of this, particularly in traditional Buddhist cultures, is the whole notion of generosity. I think we live under the myth of what I call authenticity in the West, And that myth of authenticity is, unless I actually feel it, I can't do it. Well, actually, if you think about it, some of these wholesome emotions like generosity, you might wait the whole of your life (laughs) before actually you get a genuine emotion arising (laughs) to do it. This is saying engage in the behavior or stop engaging in the behavior but particularly if you're developing wholesome emotions, engage in the behavior and you might get a clue about what it feels like. You, know, you might actually start to develop that just as we develop unwholesome habits quite easily by engaging in them repetitively. So you've probably seen, many of you have probably seen that sort of bumper sticker that used to be around, you know, engage in random acts of kindness. <laughs> you know, it's a good way of actually starting to develop a feeling of what kindness might be about. And why I say it's, I think, against, again, the inclination is the word I would use, against the inclinations of many people in the West, is if we don't feel it, it's considered to be hypocrisy. No such thing in the East. You know, just do it. Just engage in it. I, I remember one particular teacher, I've said it again, it's a story I've told many times in this room, I remember one particular teacher, Tibetan teacher, being berated by a Western student and saying something like this to him. You keep telling me to be compassionate. I don't feel compassionate. And the Tibetan teacher said to him, feel compassionate? What's that got to do with it? (laughs) Just behave compassionately. (laughs) The feeling hasn't got a lot to do with it. Now, obviously... It's far preferable when the feeling and the behavior come in line. But this is a way of starting. This is a way of inclining the mind 
through behaviour. So don't think of when inclining the mind, it's always developing mental qualities. There's actually literally practical things we can do. There are ways of behaviour we can engage in. We might not feel generous, but we can engage in generous behaviour. Generosity here has absolutely nothing to do with just giving things to people and material stuff. It's actually, in the end, is a quality of mind that starts to arise through behaviour. The behaviour, the generous behaviour, perhaps of giving a little time, a little energy, listening to that irritating person, and then you're developing kindness and generosity in this moment. So there is always something practical you can do. And this this is not stuff, actually that you always develop on the cushion. We have, and I will talk about this again if we have time, we have things which are the development of kindness and friendliness and compassion and joy and equanimity. There's a whole range of practices for doing this, which again are ways of inclining the mind. Many of you will know these are called the Brahma-viharas, the ways of dwelling dwelling with Brahma. But they're actually things that many people come, often in personal interviews, and say, after a few weeks you know, of doing this, I still don't feel friendly. <laughs> I don't feel compassionate still. But this again is a, a, a sort of inclination of the mind towards it. It's actually bending the mind in that direction. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to arise automatically. If it was that easy, we would all have it, wouldn't we? If it was that easy to get, if if that kind of depth of friendliness, that depth of compassion that the Buddha really emphasizes, if it was that easy, we would all be doing it. And I don't think we are not compassionate and we're not friendly, but often it's to a very limited number of people, a very small number of people, usually the circle of your family and your friends. And occasionally your heart might be stirred into compassion by some appeal to some disaster or something like that. But often it's very, very limited. And what these particular things that we're trying to develop, inclining our minds towards, trying to cultivate, and actually I love that. I love that, and I love that as a metaphor, cultivation. We're trying to cultivate these. We start off with very small seeds. Those seeds are already there. Now, to get that seed to germinate, you've got to do lots of things. You've got to keep watering it. You've got to keep tending it when the shoots come up. You've got to try and weed it. Stop the weeds from growing up and choking this very precious plant, which might be friendliness or compassion, that's growing. There is a lovely quotation, actually, from, again, a 14th century Tibetan te- teacher who talks about the soil of friendliness giving birth to the bloom of compassion, which is sheltered, no, it's, it's watered by the tears of joy and develops in the cool shade of equanimity. <laughs> it's a beautiful image. And again, notice that kind of almost agrarian image to it, a sort of horticultural image, which I think is really a very nice one because it actually shows you that you know, for something to grow in your continuum, then we've got to keep on in our effort 
to help it to grow. The weeding that I refer to, of course, is dealing with the unwholesome inclinations of the mind. Actually, the habitual tendencies of the mind. The mind has habitual tendencies which, if you take traditional Buddhism, have been there for lifetimes. Well, actually, in this lifetime, you've had many lifetimes. We've spent a lot, lot of time... Whatever age you are, doesn't matter what age, however young, however old, we spend a long time developing unwholesome habits. So they don't go that quickly. Remember I gave that quotation last night, the habit that moved in and didn't leave. So we've got these habits. And that actually is the way that our mind is primarily inclined, often. Not exclusively. I really don't want to paint a sort of monolithic picture, not exclusively, but a lot of the time it's conditioned. Let's use another word. It's conditioned to those tendencies of mind. They are what arise automatically. When something doesn't go our way or somebody attacks us verbally, there is anger, there is resentment, there's irritation. These, just watch them arise. You'll see them. They come up you know, like that. It's like I suggested last night, you don't find yourself craving a chocolate bar, you find yourself eating one. You don't find yourself, in most cases, getting angry. You find yourself in the midst of anger, either expressed or unexpressed. And often, actually, if we do see the arising of anger, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, I'm sure most of us have, but I'll just check out with you, is when you see the arising of anger, sometimes you go, hmm, can't be bothered. <laughs> you know, when you see it actually coming up, because you realize often, and that actually, in a way, is partly what we're doing in this training allowing ourselves to see things arising. When you see something arising, you have a choice. When you don't see it arising, when it hits you in the back like that snowball rolling down the hill after you, you know, you, can't, you don't have a choice, you cannot do anything about it. So, this is also this, this movement of looking at the ways that we incline our minds and the ways that we actually create almost a self-fulfilling prophecy for ourselves. You know, if I view the world in a particular way, if I view it in an angry way, it's a very angry world with lots of violence, which of course it does. And this is not to bury our head in the sands and say things don't go on. Of course they go on. But, of course, the patterns of violence can be there within ourselves. We can be looking out for it constantly. If I want a particularly miserable world, well, I can create it. I can really easily create that miserable world. Have you ever noticed this when you get stuck in a mood? In the morning, you get up out of bed and the whole day sort of pans out from that? Oh, no, of course you don't. <laughs> None of you do. <laughs> so the day can pan out actually from the initial moodedness, the initial emotion that we have, the initial way that we view the world, the initial way that we see it in that, you know, I suggested almost the first opening of the curtains. Well, it can be before that. It can be just lying in bed thinking about what's to be done in the day. 
You know, all the things I've got to do. Oh, <laughs> misery. <laughs> you know, and so the day actually becomes one of frustration, tiredness, irritation, anger. You know, so inclining the mind literally becomes the shape of our lives. Well, certainly the shape of that day. Do this over a long period of time and it really does become the shape of your life. It will govern the ways that you will deal with and approach the world. Now, when the Buddha speaks about kindness and compassion, and I'll just use those as the two examples just for this evening. There are lots of other wholesome mental qualities he talks about as well, but these are foregrounded, if you like, in many, many discourses. When he talks about kindness and compassion, he's also talking about a way that you can shape your life. He's also talking about a way not just of being, but of seeing the world. Literally, as we can see the world with anger, and it's an angry world, we can see the world through depression, through happiness or unhappiness. There's a quotation in, again, not the Buddha's words, but in the words of the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein in his Tractatus, who says the world of the unhappy man is completely different from that of the unhappy man. Two different worlds. Actually, of course, they're not two different worlds. It's the same world. The same world seen in two completely different ways. Now, there's one particular inclination of the mind when we're engaged in the unwholesome qualities, which, of course, I gave the word to you last night. It says a lot about the Western world, actually. They turn this into a perfume. It's called sangsara. <laughs> sangsara is is this world of circular behavior. Now, I'm going to do something now just briefly that I usually do in this, and I, because I think it's so illustrative. Sangsara traditionally is usually said to com- be composed of six distinct realms. And if you have a, a fortune enough to see the Tibetan Wheel of Life, which I referred to very briefly last night in relationship to the blind person leading the blind person, then you'll see it's composed of six distinct realms. In, in the ancient text, it was often five, but it's become six by this time. And these are six, six supposed realms you can be reborn into, depending on your karma, which is another word we've got to visit at some point. Depending on your karma depends on which, which rebirth you will take. The pinnacle of, this, of these six realms is something known as the realm of the gods. Actually, these are all the Hindu gods. What the Buddha does is he takes the Hindu gods and demotes them <laughs> by putting them into sangsara instead of leaving them outside where they traditionally are. He puts all the gods with a small g into sangsara. There's 33 realms of them altogether, supposedly, from the highest realms to the lowest realms of the gods. And the one thing that supposedly characterizes them all is that they live extremely long lives. Now, this is like the pinnacle of sangsaric rebirth. You know, this is the top. So once you get to the top, the only way is down. <laughs> yeah. Once your little karmic bank balance has run out that keeps you in that position, 
then you're likely to drop out of this realm into one of the lower realms. And because it's said that these beings, and this is all kind of mythological, so you know, to bear this with a bit of a pinch of salt, but it's all mythological. It says that, of course, these gods, because they have these extremely long lives, don't engage in any particular actions, either good or bad, really. Um, they don't see the necessity to. I mean, if you've got a life that looks like it's panning out forever... Um, yeah, well, I think I'll leave that for the next 200 years. (laughs) Why do it now? So they actually don't engage in any behaviour. They don't actually set up any other good karma to keep them in this realm. This is a traditional thing. One Tibetan text even has a very funny phrase. It says, when they're about to fall out of this realm, i.e. take up rebirth in a lower realm, they start to smell and nobody wants to talk to them. (laughs) I think it sounds like people dropping out of a social strata, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> they, they are the pinnacle, they are the top. Then generally it depends on the illustrator who does this, but sometimes it's on the right, sometimes it's on the left. And this is usually at the top of a circle. So the gods are in the middle. On the right-hand side is often what is known as the asuras. Um, literally those who the sun doesn't shine on. It's Asurya, actually. It's a, it's a truncation of a Sanskrit word. Surya being the sun, without the sun. These are what used to be termed in the good old yuppie days, the upwardly mobile. These are the ones who want to get the, what all the gods have got. They want to have all of the um, luxuries that the gods revel in. Bear in mind, me. bear with me for a second, because as I say, it's very mythological, but I think you'll get the point of it when I get to it. This is a realm where they desire what the gods have got. And there's a lovely, again, little piece of illustration you find in these, in these um, you know, Tibetan wheels of life where you've got the roots of what's called the wish-fulfilling tree in the realm of these demigods, the Asuras, and all the fruits of the tree in the realm of the gods. Uh, so all the wonderful fruits, which are wish-fulfilling gems... <laughs> are actually in the realm of the gods. Then there's the human realm on the left-hand side, and I'll leave that to the very last. That's the higher realms. Now we go lower. So we go down into the animal realm, which is actually outside of the human realm, the only one we would actually recognize physically here. Uh, the animal realm in, in ancient Buddhism, and certainly in a very, very early Buddhism, is considered, considered to be a realm of blind instinct. You know, of instinct, in other words, given over to procreation, eating and defecating, um, and nothing much in between. It's a realm of great persecution. Um, as the German philosopher Schopenhauer once remarked, he said, when I look at the animal kingdom, I see everything eating everything else. Yeah. And actually, that's often what's going on in the animal realm. It's actually a realm of, of blind instinct and great persecution. If you think, actually, of the millions of animals a day that are even slaughtered for human consumption. So it's a realm of great suffering in many senses. Then you have the realm of the peta, or praetas, as they're termed in Sanskrit, which is a realm of endless desire that cannot be satisfied. And these are illustrated as figures with tiny little pinhole mouths scraggy little necks and enormous bellies with 
a hunger and thirst that cannot ever be satisfied because they can't get enough in through their mouths and down their throats, literally. So it's an, a realm of desire that can't be satisfied. And then you finally have the hell realm right at the bottom. The hell realm at the bottom. And here you have Yama, who's the god of death, and he holds a big mirror. Nobody judges you except yourself in the hell realm. And you judge, and the punishments that are meted out to you depend on what you see in the mirror when the mirror is held up to you. Um, <laughs> I was, there's one particular um, illustrator, Tibetan illustrator, who used to be up in, in Samuel Ling, up in Scotland. And he had a wonderful thing. He had somebody having their tongue stretched out with people going up and down it with a plough. This was apparently the punishment for lying. <laughs> um, finally, you have the realm of the humans, which is actually the realm of the possibility of wisdom and compassion. Notice I say possibility, not of actuality. The possibilities of developing some kind of wisdom and compassion in this world. Now, I was very, very young when I first heard this. I was about 17 or 18 when I first heard this, and I was kind of clever clogs. So I said to the Tibetan teacher I was with, I said, I know people like that. You know, people who think they've got everything. You know, people actually in the depths of real depression because of the way they self-lacerate themselves and the way they beat themselves up. You know, two ends of the pinnacle, two ends of the scale, really. I know people with endless desire, whose desire simply can't be fulfilled, simply can't be satiated at all. often see people, know people, with kind of instinctual attitudes of animals, really. Not a lot different, not a lot of thought processes, just driven by sexual instincts, the instinct for procreation and food, um, and everything else that goes with those kind of blind instincts. You know, people who are trying to get to the kind of pinnacle of whatever their profession might be, determined to get there, never actually sometimes reach it, always in a state of frustration because they haven't got what, if you like, the gods have got, what's those who've reached the pinnacle of their profession have got. And I said, well, I kind of know all these people. And I said, is that how it is? Are these kind of character types? And this Tibetan teacher said, um, no. That's a picture of you on one day. <laughs> and then he turned it out, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, I, I think it's very, it still kind of gets to me now. I said, but the question is, how often are you human in a day? Yeah. How often are you actually at least trying to develop those possible qualities of wisdom and compassion in your life? How much are you trying to do that? Because much of the rest is slightly dehumanized. It's just everything else. You can call this just working on the automatic. You know, blind instinct is certainly like that, craving for stuff, um, a desire that's never satisfied, feeling ourselves sometimes very complacent. I've got everything. I don't need to do anything anymore until it all comes crashing down and you move into the next mood. So this is very, very much a picture in sense senses of how in sangsara you can incline the mind. Now, for some people, and you know, let's not exclude ourselves, just think about your own situation. Sometimes one or more of those particular six realms can take up your day. 
you can get trapped in it in a day. You can get trapped in the hell realm. You can get trapped in a realm of misery, you know, depression, upset, beating yourself up about all sorts of stuff, remorse. You can get trapped in complacency, not really wishing to do anything. You know, it's kind of sunny day, everything's right in my world. Yeah. You can get trapped in cycles of desire. Now, mostly, of course, they're very, very intermixed, as was indicated by that particular teacher's response to my rather facile comment that these are kind of character types. But, of course, we can exhibit these very strongly or have a certain flavouring in our day, in our hour, in our ten minutes. We can actually whirl through these six realms extremely quickly. So I think the thing to hear, despite all the mythological connotations of them, and I think, again, one way of reading certainly the text, and there is a very valid way of reading these psychologically, is to see these as psychological states, which we vacillate and fall in and out of on a daily basis. They're ways of inclining the mind, so the mind can be inclined towards blind instinct, aggression to get to the top, whatever that top might be for you, and I'm not talking about kind of pinnacle of high society or anything like that. It might be the abandonment to desire, to fairly unthought-out world where all we're thinking about is the next thing, as I was talking about last night, to try and satisfy our craving before we're on to the next thing to satisfy our craving. From this perspective, actually, with all of this repetitive behavior, something like obsessive-compulsive disorder is not a clinical disorder from the Buddhist point of view. It's a disorder we all suffer from. We're all obsessive-compulsive. We're all doing the same stuff again and again and again and again. But, of course, the caveat is we don't have to. We don't have to be entrapped in that way. We don't have to be caught up in this cycle of repetition, this sangsaric repetition. Interestingly, again, on the iconography of this, you find a Buddha figure outside of sangsara. The representation of the Buddha is always outside of sangsara, usually pointing at sangsara, pointing at this, this has to be overcome. This is what has to be dealt with. Now, this word sangsara... I don't, don't like doing this so much in these kind of retreat situations, but I will do it because I think it's important to hear it. Sangsara is not a place. It's not somewhere you go to. As nirvana isn't a place or somewhere you go to. In Pali and Sanskrit and in the languages they're translated into, these are verb forms. So these are activities. You know, so it sounds very ugly in English, but actually it's sangsara-ing. That's what we're doing. And we have a proclivity to sangsara, to do things in our daily life, to make this world this world of entrapment, a world of inclining the mind continuously in particular ways that don't help with release, with ease of heart, with ease of mind, with contentment, with peace. The Buddha points out, of course, that the greatest happiness of all is equanimity. 
where you're no longer being called by blindly unexamined forms of life, what we might kind of call you know, the automatic nature of the way that we live, but we actually have very thoughtful ways of developing and transforming the mind which lead to a gradual spaciousness in life. I don't know how it ever appears to you in when we feel we're engaged in, I don't know, a cycle of entrapment, perhaps through craving, anger, resentment, whatever the state of mind which we could call unwholesome that we can get ourselves into, often quite easily, you have to obviously select the one that you find that you drop into quite easily here. You know, but the thing that I think you'll genuine, generally find when you examine those states of mind, those unwholesome states of mind, there's not a lot of spaciousness in them. There's generally a sort of claustrophobic feeling about being there, like not being very comfortable in your own skin about being in those states of mind. Now, what the Buddha, of course, on a very practical level, is suggesting to us, and this is what we're engaging in, and tomorrow I'll take it out of the kind of negative connotations and try to now put some of the positive connotations on this, of what we can do about this. Now, I've suggested some of it already. Mindfulness, you know, that quotation, let me just read it to you again. He who has perfected, well-developed, and practiced in due order mindfulness of breathing as taught by the Buddha, illuminates the whole world. It's a big statement, isn't it? It's not one to be taken lightly. There's something about the development of mindfulness, along with other qualities, that actually takes us from a claustrophobic, rather dark world into a much brighter world, into a world with a great deal of spaciousness in it. Now, that spaciousness is often indicated by a word I really, really don't like because it sounds so negative. And some of you might have come across it. It's partly the reason I'm mentioning it. A word which particularly is associated with Tibetan tradition is called emptiness. Well, actually, what it means is spaciousness. Rather than a whole world of essential qualities, you know, you are essentially this and I'm essentially that, and... You know, we can't change. There is actually a great deal of spaciousness, a sort of no-thingness to it. There's no thing. Not nothing, but there's no thing to it. And this is a spaciousness, a quality of spaciousness. And we can incline our minds towards that spaciousness and to the development of that spaciousness. But we have to have, of course, the intention. The intention to want to do that. Now, that intention could be driven by bigger motivations, as it is in some forms of Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism, this you know, slightly later development of the Buddhist vision, which took particularly root in China and Japan, Korea, and finally Tibet, was a vision towards developing this sense of spaciousness, this compassion, this understanding for the benefit of all not just for oneself, but for the benefit of all. And that really doesn't mark that much of a change from early Buddhism. It just makes much more explicit what is there in the sense of the early Buddhist ideal. To be of help to others. 
by being, enacting those random acts of compassion and those random acts of kindness in this world, rather than all too often acts of resentment, anger, envy, jealousy, and you could have the litany there, um, which even if they're not enacted are often there as our inclination of mind. They come out in verbal forms. I'll give you some of those tomorrow night and then move on to the more positive stuff. They often come out in verbal forms. The ways that um, envy is expressed in our lives. Even if I had the money, I wouldn't want that. (laughs) You know, just little indications. Well, not say little actually, are they? But the indications that come out verbally show these mental states that are there, these inclinations of mind that I've gone on about right since the start of this talk this evening here. So the question you have to ask yourself, and I'm going to keep asking you questions, I don't expect you to provide answers to them, but at least to get you to question yourself about this, do I really want to live that way? Do I really want to live in the way that's permeated by that inclination of mind which is one which has a propensity towards anger? which has a propensity towards avarice, towards jealousy, towards resentment? Or would you much rather live the spaciousness of compassion, the spaciousness of kindness, the spaciousness of generosity, the spaciousness of a joyfulness in the being of others? You know? Now, only you can answer that because actually the movement or the mental transformation, transformation from one to the other, of course, is not easy. You know, if it was easy again, I would say everybody would have it. You know, but we don't. It requires effort. Just as the athlete has to train in order to run whatever distance they do, and it takes a great deal of training to get up to that kind of peak of physical perfection to be able to do whatever their athletic sport is, then equally, if you like, the person on the path is training to become an athlete on the spiritual path. (laughs) It really is, because you start off pretty flabby. And you're training yourself again and again and again. And this is partly why we start with concentration. Concentration isn't easy, is it? Often when we're doing something, our mind is wandering off. I'm reading a book, my mind's going off. Watching television, my mind's going somewhere else, thinking about what I'm going to cook later on, what I'm going to do tomorrow. The mind is wandering. It's, It's going off on these usually past and future events. Very rarely do we get it to stay unless it absolutely captivates us. Now, at this moment in time, perhaps I'm going to try and finish off on this, at this moment in time, there's something that's very captivating to us. It's called samsara. It's still enchanting and it's still captivating. So, and what I mean by that is that there are still elements of it that really attract us, that we still really want to have, really engage in, Almost nirvana sounds boring, <laughs> doesn't it? It's kind of like the old heaven and hell argument. You know, who'd want to go to heaven? 
It just sounds so tedious. <laughs> you know. What really that, I think, is highlighting, again, is this thing that perhaps more in a Buddhist way we have is there's still a lot of attraction to the kinds of things that go on in samsara because there's captivation by them. Enchantment is actually the word. What we are encouraged to develop, again, a way of inclining our mind, is a progressive disenchantment with all of those things which appear to be so captivating, which, but ultimately provide us, as I suggested last night, with no nutrition whatsoever of any lasting sort, if they provide any nutrition at all, that is. So there has to be this progressive disenchantment with those things. And nirvana, rather than being boring, again is a state. It's a nirvanaing in this world. You know, when the Buddha reaches you know, the end of his life, he's spent 45 years nirvanaing. Yeah, it's quite a long teaching career by anybody's um, estimation. Certainly in ancient India it would have been a very long teaching career. Yeah, so he spent 45 years from his night of awakening to the time he dies at the age of 80, which is basically just a big number in India. Yeah, so he spent a long time in this nirvanaing state. He didn't pop off to Buddhist heaven. Yeah, what he did was he walked around the world and spoke and acted out of three roots, which actually are the psychology, if you like, of nirvanaing which are generosity, friendliness and compassion, and wisdom or understanding. And in a way, that's the choice we have. And that nirvana-ing really represents a total engagement with the world, not a cutting off from the world. But it's not an enchantment with all the sorts of things that the world usually has to offer. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take pleasure we do take pleasure, and particularly as lay people, we're going to take pleasure. doesn't mean that we can't be in a beautiful landscape, like such as the grounds of Gaia House, and not take pleasure in it. But we don't have to crave it. That's the difference. That's what marks the nirvana-ing experience, is the dissolution and the disappearance, and this is where we started last night, of the craving which marks the most easily understandable element of our entanglement with a world which actually is the world of sangsara, the sangsaring world, which is tinged, nay, even completely dyed with the colour of dukkha, you know, with the colour and the feelings that are associated with distress, with unhappiness, with irritation, all of these things. So I'll finish off on that tonight. Again, as usual, I'll open it up. And tomorrow night, again, I'll use this as a launch pad for then starting to explore some of the approaches that the Buddha takes, particularly the approach that we can take towards of mindfulness, of awareness on this path to awakening. So we have a few minutes for some questions if people want to ask me anything, or comments. They don't have to be questions.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't see why this is a difficulty. <laughs> because actually, um, that's you know the whole notion of impermanence and transitoriness is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it can be scary, particularly when people first encounter it, because in a way, it's the loss of everything you think is perhaps fixed and stable in your life. It can be seen as that. But on the other hand, which is what you're exemplifying and what you're saying... It is that opening up to the beauty of impermanence. You know, um, I always take as an example, and you use the word blossom, but I mean, the height of Japanese aesthetics is cherry blossom. On the Japanese news, I don't know if any of you have ever come across it, on Japanese news, every day they report in the country where the best cherry blossom is in the spring. And people rush off and see it uh, to see the cherry blossom. Um, and the very fact that it's considered to be so wonderful, the cherry blossom, is the fact of its impermanence. That it's only there for a few short days, and then it's gone. Imagine, you know, taking it outside, of, taking it outside the Japanese context. But imagine if cherry blossom was around all the time. Would we appreciate it? I wonder if we would. Yes. I think we can transpose this onto our lives, though. Would our lives have much meaning if they were immortal? Yeah, exactly, yes. Or as a Tibetan friend of mine said about manana, we don't have any word in Tibetan to express such urgency. Um, but that aside, I mean, I think this really brings it home because actually transitoriness and permanence is what brings beauty to the physical world and the world that we live in, but it also brings a degree of beauty and wonder to our own lives because they are actually so finite. You can imagine if we had, I joked about slightly in relationship to the gods, you know, in, in terms of the wheel of life, and you can imagine if we had an infinite life, you know, Oh, I won't do it today. Let's put it off for 300 years. <laughs> you, know, you just wouldn't do anything, really, would you? It's because, in some senses, either explicitly cognized by us and recognized by us um, that we are finite. We have a finite number of choices in our life. You know, um, that there is a degree of urgency to it. And in fact, in Buddhism... There's one very strong emotion in Buddhism, which is actually in Pali, it's called Sangvega. Sangvega is the urgency for spiritual practice, to actually do it now, not to put it off till tomorrow. Because yeah? tomorrow might never come. 
It might not be here at all. You know, so many, many things in, in Buddhist literature of all cultures, not just from the early Sanskritic Pali traditions, but running through traditional Buddhist cultures, are trying to make us aware, of course, and Tibetans have a, just a common phrase. They say one thing is absolutely certain, death. One thing is very uncertain, when. <laughs> and they joke about it. They laugh about that. <laughs> you know, just ordinary Tibetans, you'll see them, they'll say, you know, one thing is absolutely certain, death. One thing is absolutely uncertain, when. <laughs> like this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it doesn't make for being miserable, <laughs> is the reason why I'm trying to point that out to you. It doesn't make for being miserable, just taking on, on uh, into our awareness that, of course, we are finite. And actually, it might bring an urgency to what you do. I don't mean desperation, but I mean an urgency to what we do. And I think that's true of spiritual practice. So, I mean, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, and this is why I don't see it's a problem. Well, it's called the deathless, actually. Many ways of interpreting that passage. Um, <laughs> and a lot of it relies on actually understanding a little bit about the way, the way languages work here. Um, but I won't go into it, but I'll just make one point about that. Is it's not a deathless post-mortem state that I think is being indicated here. What it refers to is that something can die only if it is a self and a permanent self. It's the self that actually dies. If one realises that there is no self in the sense of a fixed, solid sense of self, actually we live the deathless now. There's no fear of death. Because there's nothing really there that we think is going to die in that strong sense of the word. So the Buddha, I don't think, is referring to some kind of immortal post-mortem state within that. There are many ways of interpreting that passage, though. And it's actually, interestingly, only one passage in the whole of a huge canon. <laughs> and it's the one that's been kind of carefully selected um, out of this enormous canon, which is the Pali canon, which is a huge quantity of work. Yeah. But it's only one reference, and I think that's what it means there. But yeah, I have to convince you by talking a lot more about languages and things like that, but uh, we haven't got time. And it's not the place either. <laughs> yeah, because... Well, the first thing to ask you is, have you experimented with your position in the way you sit? Because actually, although it's very nice to sit on the floor, it's not always the most appropriate place to sit, and particularly if you have a tendency or proneness to neck and shoulder problems. Well, the second, second thing then is that strikes me about that, and it's, it's a very, very common problem, is actually trying too hard. Yeah. 
Um, when you try too hard, when you try to concentrate... Remember, I've actually been using words to try and deflect that. I mean, I hope you've been hearing that, but I've been trying to say, you know, don't grasp after it, don't hold on to it, don't use force or strain to hold on to the object, because actually that's not what it's about. So it's really to come into a much more gentle relationship with it. And, okay, if your mind drifts off in ten seconds... It really doesn't matter, you know, because as soon as you become aware that it's drifted off, in a sense, your awareness is back with the object, you know, as soon as you're aware of that. And again, a phrase I've uttered throughout, again, to try and ease that problem, is it doesn't matter how many times you do this. It really, really doesn't. So actually, if you find neck and shoulder tension creeping in, just let go, drop all sense of trying to concentrate. You can pick on something else, pick up on something else. For example, sounds in the room. You can use that as an object. You know, because sounds will be arising and an image I often use is a bit like a lake, you know, where bubbles are arising to the surface in different parts. There'll be a sound over here, a sound over there, one outside, one very, very distant I can just hear. And then somebody coughs at the back of the room. And then you can use that. Almost like the ears are two huge listening devices. Yeah, that you're just picking up on. That, in a sense, takes you away from that narrowness of focus, which, of course, happens naturally with the breath. Now, if you feel neck and shoulder tension easing, then you can come back to that. Yeah. So it's a process of widening, contracting, widening and contracting. You can use that as a basis for what you're doing in a meditation session. Until you start to feel you get the balance right, the way that you're holding your object of concentration. But it's a matter of experiment. There's no kind of, well, you'll do this and I'll say that your neck and shoulder. Sometimes it takes a long time, actually, for it to actually for you to find that balance. With it. But it does sound very indicative of just kind of almost like you're mentally going yeah. like this and creating a degree of tension there. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, it, it, you know, sitting for long periods of time, it will find your weak spots, and it will find particular places where you carry, you know, short, um, the predominance of your attention. And because a lot of stuff that we do in the West, I don't know if it's the case with yourselves, but a lot of stuff we do in the West is sedentary sitting. We build up a lot of neck and shoulder tension in general. That's why it's important also about getting, you know, one of the descriptions often I remember from one of the texts I read was actually that the, the, actually the frame is basically like a rag doll. That's it. With just the head kind of balanced on top of it. And that's how everything should be loose as you do this. Now, there are certain things you can do, very practical things. For example, if you find tension developing, again, you can use the breath and roll the shoulders. Roll them each way, you know. Do that a few times. It doesn't have to be disruptive to others. Just take a few deep breaths. Roll the shoulders. Uh, but again, it's a matter of experimenting. There's nothing I can say that's going to say, well, this will actually take it away. This is the panacea. No, there's nothing like that. It's a matter of experimentation. And often just a matter of familiarization, actually sitting for long periods of time. Yeah. Um, 
it does take time. Sometimes it means actually um, selecting another way to sit. You know, perhaps on a chair. You know, perhaps on one of these things. You know, just again experimenting with it. There's no really hard and fast rules about this. It feels like there's only one really hard and fast rule about meditational practice. It's keeping a straight spine. That's the really hard and fast rule about it. For the obvious reasons that I pointed out at the very beginning. That when the spine starts to slump, then sleepiness and drowsiness generally start to arise. So just keep experimenting. Well, actually, that's the traditional posture to meditate with the eyes open um, and let them close naturally is one of the um, recommendations. Well, certainly the teachers I had in Sri Lanka very much said that. And so the posture is actually looking down the nose, so you're actually looking at the floor down the nose. Um, Automatically, because in a sense you're slightly cross-eyed doing that, you get a bit of tension there which actually aids concentration, actually aids the concentration. At some point, you'll probably find that the eyes will naturally start to close. So it's the eyes half open. They're not wide open, they're half open. If you look at the majority, again, of traditional Buddha statues, you'll find the eyes are very half open. A lot of Tibetan statues, a lot of Sri Lankan statues, you'll find them just in that particular posture. That is the traditional posture. For some reason, over the centuries, it's um, taken on, particularly in the West, is having the eyes closed. And I think it's probably being taken up a lot from Christian meditation traditions here yeah, and other meditation traditions, which is where the eyes are closed. Um, but the thing is, is to when you, if you do have them open, actually this is a perfect carpet because there's not too much busyness in it. Because yeah, you don't want to be kind of on a busy, I don't know, Persian rug or something. Sitting there, and eyes are going all over the place. <laughs> so you want something that's fairly neutral to cast your eyes down onto, and that's often the big problem. Doing that. Again, it's one of those things like, I'm not kind of trying to hedge my, the questions here, but it's one of those things that you really have to experience. It's so individual. Some people find it much more difficult to do it that way, while others find it much more difficult to actually meditate with their eyes closed. So it's a case of trying both. See which works for you. Um, and as I say, you might find it actually one merges into the other. Having the eyes open initially might actually merge into having the eyes closed. As I say, certainly that was the way I was taught. That often happened. Just one more, actually two more, and then we'll finish. Um, I saw that it's a long-running thing that goes on the whole week. Sorry, I didn't quite hear the first bit. A song in your head. Okay, yeah. I don't usually do that, but when I'm going to meditation retreat, it's underground. Yeah. Now you know why they avoid entertainments at meditation <laughs> centres. <laughs> um, yes, it's, it's one of those things that will come up uh, on, on occasion. Yeah, it's, it's, um, if it's like a sort of predominant theme that will come through. I mean, on occasions I get that happening as well. But it goes, after you, after you start to develop your concentration, your awareness, it starts to drop 
Because actually, the interest and curiosity to bring to what you're doing actually overtakes the sounds or the lines or whatever it is that's being repeated in your head. You know, so it's kind of developing that curiosity and interest about the exploration. You know, it's that simple one we've been doing today. What's the length of the breath? You know, we'll extend that tomorrow slightly. The more curiosity and more interest you bring to what's going on in this breath? What's going on right now? I really want to know what's going on now. What's actually happening here? The less chance that's likely to happen. You know? But you still might drift off to it on occasionally. It becomes less alluring. <laughs> and there was one other question, then we must finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and you feel yourself balancing again and again, and that whole process just—I I was amazed. Um, and I just would like your perspective on how to break through that out to on the other side to that um, this identification that you talked about this morning—that we are not our body. Mm-hmm. At this stage, I say don't. Appreciate the joy of it. You know, I really do. Because often we can try to move into this and it becomes body-denying rather than just seeing the body as body. So appreciate your embodiment. Really do. I mean, if, you, if you're really finding some sense of wonder in it, I think that's wonderful. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? When you really begin to experience that wonder of just walking. You know? As I said, you know, when I introduced it, for those who are unfamiliar with it, I said, you know, basically walking is controlled falling. <laughs> That's what it is. Yet we're not aware of it when we're doing it. And, and I think if you can appreciate the wonder of just that, you know, stay with that for a while, you know, and you know, talk to me later about it, and then perhaps we'll switch. It. But just, just be with that at the moment. Okay, I think we should draw this to a close now. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.